Greetings, Groovers. Seekers of sophistication, lovers of literature, how are you doing? Tis I, Nicholas of Hennigan on Residence 104.4 FM, flipping marvellous, careering into the new year. How are you? I hope you've had a good week. Uh, I've had a pretty manic week, actually. Oops, I should turn my email off, shouldn't I? Sorry about that. Um, Shall I tell you about it? No. Well, all right, briefly. It looks like we're going back to the Edinburgh Festival. It looks like we're going to go back with two shows. One, uh, a, a play I wrote a few years ago about four kids growing up in Birmingham called Pals. And four actors, the same four actors, doing a version of Romeo and Juliet. Why? I've no idea. Mad? Slightly. But if you'd like to know more, then please do feel free to get in touch uh, about anything, really. Um, you can always get in touch with me. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk is probably the the best address. Uh, radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk because I'm not often in the studio nowadays. Uh, and it'd be nice to hear from you. So what are we going to do this week? I hear you cry. Well, don't cry. It's not that bad. We're kind of commiserating, really. I'd say celebrating, but that's the wrong word. The passing of George Orwell author, of course, of 1984 and Animal Farm and other books, and also Rudyard Kipling. So uh, it was, um, uh, we lost both of them. Uh, 21st of January 1950, George Orwell passed away, and the 18th of January 1936, we lost Rudyard Kipling. Uh, and I might actually, I might actually do a little reading for you. Yeah, from George Orwell. And we've got a spooky, ooh, a spooky ghost story. From Rudyard Kipling. Oh, yes, we have. So, Rudyard Kipling, of course. Uh, well, you know, everyone kind of knows about Rudyard Kipling, don't they? Born in Bombay on uh, the 30th of December in 1865. Uh, son of John Lockwood Kipling, an artist and a teacher of art uh, of um, sculpture. And his wife, Alice. So, uh, yeah, the boy did well. His earliest days in Bombay were fairly happy in India, full of exotic sights and sounds. But then, at the tender age of five, he was sent back to England to stay with a foster family in South Sea, where he wasn't very happy. Um, and the experience would colour, I think, some of his latest works. Uh, so, he, um, he kind of, well... At 16, went back to Lahore, where his parents now lived. And, of course, in his spare time, he used to write poems and stories which finally were published alongside his reporting. He was a reporter. So he returned to England in 1889. He won instant success with Barrack Room Ballads, which were followed by some uh, more brilliant short stories. Um, and uh, then, he, after the death of an American friend and a literary co a collaborator, Walcott Ballister, he married Walcott's sister, Carrie, in 1892. After a world trip, he returned with Carrie to their family home in the USA with the aim of settling down there. And uh, he wrote Captain Courageous and the Jungle Books while he was over there. So a quarrel with his brother-in-law drove the Kiplings back to England in 1896. Funny to think that, isn't it? A domestic quarrel brought them back to England, where they moved to Rottingdean in Sussex, uh, the county which he adopted as his own. Their son, John, was born in North End House which was a holiday home of Rudyard's aunt, um, Georgina Byrne-Jones. There's a name to conjure with, Byrne-Jones. And they soon moved into the Elms. Life was very content, and then tragically, Josephine died while the family were on a visit to the United States in 1899. Um, by now, Kipping had sort of come to be regarded as the people's laureate and the poet of empire, which, of course, he gets some criticism for now, quite rightly too, in my opinion, uh, but he's still a, a brilliant writer. He produced some of his most remarkable poems and stories in Rottingdean 
uh, including Kim and the Just So Stories. So there's a, now a, a Kipling uh, room at the Rottingdean Preservation Society, the Museum of the Rottingdean Preservation Society, which was a reconstruction of his study in the Elms and a, an interesting kind of <laughs> kind of poet of him, <laughs> facsimile of Roger R. Kipling. I know him, of course, because he used to drink at that wine bar down by Embankment Tube Station. What's, I forget the name of it now, but they do Tawny Port. Me and a, yes, me and a mate lost a night there, another writer. But, uh, of course, Kipling, uh, he lost his son, of course, at the age of 18 in the Battle of Lewes in the First World War in 1915. But he continued to write. He actually forecast the First World War and tried to alert the nation to the need for preparedness. But um, he died in, uh, say, 1936, just three days before the king. He declined many of the offers and the honours, rather, which had been uh, sort of offered to him, including a knighthood and the Poet Laureateship and the Order of Merit. But in 1907, he did accept the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he wrote some good stuff. Oh, yes, he did. Including some ghost stories. So turn the light down now. This is Rudyard Kipling. <laughs> My Own True Ghost Story by Rudyard Kipling As I came through the desert, thus it was as I came through the desert, the city of dreadful night. Somewhere in the other world, where there are books and pictures and plays and shop windows to look at, and thousands of men who spend their lives in building up all four, lives a gentleman who writes real stories about the real insides of people, and his name is Mr Walter Besant. But he will insist upon treating his ghosts, he has published half a workshop full of them, with levity. He makes his ghost-seers talk familiarly and in some cases flirt outrageously with the phantoms. You may treat anything from a viceroy to a vernacular paper with levity, but you must behave reverently towards a ghost, and particularly an Indian one. There are in this land ghosts who take the form of fat, cold, pobby corpses and hide in trees near the roadside till a traveller passes. Then they drop upon his neck and remain. There are also terrible ghosts of women who have died in childbed. These wander along the pathways at dusk or hide in the crops near a village and call seductively. But to answer their call is death in this world and the next. Their feet are turned backward that all sober men may recognise them. There are ghosts of little children who have been thrown into wells. These haunt well curbs of the fringes of jungles and wail under the stars or catch women by the wrist and beg to be taken up and carried. These and the corpse ghosts, however, are only vernacular articles and do not attack Saabs. No native ghost has yet been authentically reported to have frightened an Englishman. But many English ghosts have scared the life out of both white and black. Nearly every other station owns a ghost. There are said to be two at Simla, not counting the woman who blows the bellows at Syrie Dark Bungalow on the old road. Missouri has a house haunted of a very lively thing. A white lady is supposed to do night watchman round a house in Lahore. Dalhousie says that one of her houses repeats on autumn evenings all the incidents of a horrible horse and precipice accident. Murray has a merry ghost, and now that she has been swept by cholera will have room for a sorrowful one, there are officers' quarters in Myanmar whose doors open without reason and whose furniture is guaranteed to creak not with the heat of June but with the weight of invisibles who come to lounge in the chairs. Peshawar possesses houses that none will willingly rent. 
and there is something not fever wrong with a big bungalow in Allahabad. The older provinces simply bristle with haunted houses and march phantom armies along their main thoroughfares. Some of the dark bungalows on the Grand Trunk Road have handy little cemeteries in their compound, witnesses to the changes and chances of this mortal life in the days when men drove from Calcutta to the northwest. These bungalows are objectionable places to put up in. They are generally very old, always dirty, while the Khan Summer is as ancient as the bungalow. He either chatters senilely or falls into the long trances of age. In both moods he is useless. If you get angry with him, he refers to some Saab dead and buried these thirty years and says that when he was in that Saab service, not a Khansama in the province could touch him. Then he jabbers and mouths and trembles and fidgets among the dishes and you repent of your irritation. In these dark bungalows, ghosts are most likely to be found and when found, they should be made a note of. Not long ago it was my business to live in dark bungalows. I never inhabited the same house for three nights running and grew to be learned in the breed. I lived in government-built ones with red brick walls and rail ceilings, an inventory of the furniture posted in every room and an excited snake at the threshold to give welcome. I lived in converted ones, old houses officiating as dark bungalows where nothing was in its proper place and there wasn't even a fowl for dinner. I lived in second-hand palaces where the wind blew through open-work marble tracery just as uncomfortably as through a broken pane. I lived in dark bungalows where the last entry in the visitor's book was fifteen months old and where they slashed off the curry kid's head with a sword. It was my good luck to meet all sorts of men, from sober travelling missionaries and deserters flying from British regiments to drunken loafers who threw whisky bottles at all who passed and my still greater good fortune just to escape a maternity case. Seeing that a fair proportion of the tragedy of our lives out here acted itself in dark bungalows, I wondered that I had met no ghosts. A ghost that would voluntarily hang about a dark bungalow would be mad, of course, but so many men have died mad in dark bungalows that there must be a fair percentage of lunatic ghosts. In due time, I found my ghost, or ghosts, rather, for there were two of them. Up till that hour, I had sympathised with Mr. Besant's method of handling them, as shown in the strange case of Mr. Lucraft and other stories. I am now in the opposition. We will call the bungalow Katmal Dark Bungalow, but that was the smallest part of the horror. A man with a sensitive hide has no right to sleep in dark bungalows. He should marry. Katmal Dark Bungalow was old and rotten and unrepaired. The floor was of worn brick, the walls were filthy and the windows were nearly black with grime. It stood on a bypath largely used by native sub-deputy assistants of all kinds, from finance to forests, but real Saabs were rare. The Khansama, who was nearly bent double with old age, said so. When I arrived, there was a fitful, undecided rain on the face of the land, accompanied by a restless wind, and every gust made a noise like the rattling of dry bones in the stiff toddy palms outside. The Khansamar completely lost his head on my arrival. He had served a Saab once. Did I know that Saab? He gave me the name of a well-known man who has been buried for more than a quarter of a century and showed me an ancient daguerreotype of that man in his prehistoric youth. I had seen a steel engraving of him at the head of a double volume of memoirs a month before and I felt ancient beyond telling. The day shut in and the Khansamar went to get me food. He did not go through the pretense of calling it Kana, man's victuals. He said, Ratab, 
and that means, among other things, grub, dog's rations. There was no insult in his choice of the term. He had forgotten the other word, I suppose. While he was cutting up the dead bodies of animals, I settled myself down after exploring the dark bungalow. There were three rooms beside my own, which was a corner kennel, each giving into the other through dingy white doors fastened with long iron bars. The bungalow was a very solid one, but the partition walls of the rooms were almost jerry-built in their flimsiness. Every step or bang of a trunk echoed from my room down the other three, and every footfall came back tremulously from the far walls. For this reason, I shut the door. There were no lamps, only candles in long glass shades. An oil wick was set in the bathroom. For bleak, unadulterated misery, that dark bungalow was the worst of the many that I had ever set foot in. There was no fireplace, and the windows would not open, so a brazier of charcoal would have been useless. The rain and the wind splashed and gurgled and moaned round the house, and the toddy palms rattled and roared. Half a dozen jackals went through the compound singing, and a hyena stood afar off and mocked them. A hyena would convince the Sadducee of the resurrection of the dead, the worst sort of dead. Then came the ratub, a curious meal, half native and half English in composition, with the old Khansamer babbling behind my chair about dead-and-gone English people, and the wind-blown candles playing shadow bow-peep with the bed and the mosquito curtains. It was just the sort of dinner and evening to make a man think of every single one of his past sins, and of all the others that he intended to commit if he lived. Sleep, for several hundred reasons, was not easy. The lamp in the bathroom threw the most absurd shadows into the room, and the wind was beginning to talk nonsense. Just when the reasons were drowsy with blood-sucking, I heard the regular let-us-take-and-heave-him-over grunt of dooley-bearers in the compound. First one dooley came in, then a second, and then a third. I heard the dooleys dumped on the ground, and the shutter in front of my door shook. That's someone trying to come in, I said. But no one spoke, and I persuaded myself that it was the gusty wind. The shutter of the room next to mine was attacked, flung back, and the inner door opened. That's some sub-deputy assistant, I said, and he has brought his friends with him. Now they'll talk and spit and smoke for an hour. But there were no voices and no footsteps. No one was putting his luggage into the next room. The door shut, and I thanked Providence that I was to be left in peace. But I was curious to know where the Dooleys had gone. I got out of bed and looked into the darkness. There was never a sign of a Dooley. Just as I was getting into bed again, I heard in the next room the sound that no man in his senses can possibly mistake, the whir of a billiard ball down the length of the slates when the striker is stringing for break. No other sound is like it. A minute afterwards there was another whir, and I got into bed. I was not frightened. Indeed, I was not. I was very curious to know what had become of the Dooleys. I jumped into bed for that reason. Next minute I heard the double click of a cannon, and my hair sat up. It is a mistake to say that hair stands up. The skin of the head tightens, and you can feel a faint prickly bristling all over the scalp. That is the hair sitting up. There was a whir and a click, and both sounds could only have been made by one thing, a billiard ball. I argued the matter out at great length with myself, and the more I argued, the less probable it seemed that one bed, one table, and two chairs, all the furniture of the room next to mine, could so exactly duplicate the sounds of a game of billiards. 
After another cannon, a three-cushion one to judge by the were, I argued no more. I had found my ghost, and would have given worlds to have escaped from that dark bungalow. I listened, and with each listen the game grew clearer. There was whir on whir and click on click. Sometimes there was a double click and a whir and another click. Beyond any sort of doubt, people were playing billiards in the next room. And the next room was not big enough to hold a billiard table. Between the pauses of the wind, I heard the game go forward, stroke after stroke. I tried to believe that I could not hear voices, but that attempt was a failure. Do you know what fear is? Not ordinary fear of insult, injury or death, but abject, quivering dread of something that you cannot see. Fear that dries the inside of the mouth and half of the throat. Fear that makes you sweat on the palms of the hands and gulp in order to keep the uvula at work. This is a fine fear, a great cowardice, and must be felt to be appreciated. The very improbability of billiards in a dark bungalow proved the reality of the thing. No man, drunk or sober, could imagine a game at billiards or invent the spitting crack of a screw cannon. A severe course of dark bungalows has this disadvantage. It breeds infinite credulity. If a man said to a confirmed dark bungalow haunter, there is a corpse in the next room, and there's a mad girl in the next but one, and the woman and man on that camel have just eloped from a place sixty miles away, the hearer would not disbelieve because he would know that nothing is too wild, grotesque or horrible to happen in a dark bungalow. This credulity, unfortunately, extends to ghosts. A rational person, fresh from his own house, would have turned on his side and slept. I did not. So surely as I was given up as a bad carcass by the scores of things in the bed because the bulk of my blood was in my heart, so surely did I hear every stroke of a long game at billiards played in the echoing room behind the iron-barred door. My dominant fear was that the players might want a marker. It was an absurd fear, because creatures who could play in the dark would be above such superfluities. I only know that that was my terror, and it was real. After a long, long while, the game stopped and the door banged. I slept because I was dead tired. Otherwise I should have preferred to have kept awake. Not for everything in Asia would I have dropped the door bar and peered into the dark of the next room. When the morning came, I considered that I had done well and wisely, and inquired for the means of departure. By the way, Kansama, I said, what were those three doolies doing in my compound in the night? There were no doolies, said the Kansama. I went into the next room, and the daylight streamed through the open door. I was immensely brave. I would at that hour have played black pool with the owner of the big black pool down below. Has this place always been a dark bungalow? I asked. No, said the Kansama. Ten or twenty years ago. I have forgotten how long. It was a billiard room. Uh, how much? A billiard room for the Saabs who built the railway. I was Kansama then in the big house where all the railway sabs lived, and I used to come across with brandy shrub. These three rooms were all one, and they held a big table on which the sabs played every evening. But the sabs are all dead now, and the railway runs, you say, nearly to Kabul. Do you remember anything about the sabs? It is long ago, but I remember that one sab, a fat man and always angry, 
was playing here one night, and he said to me, Mangal Khan, brandy panido. And I filled the glass, and he bent over the table to strike, and his head fell lower and lower till it hit the table, and his spectacles came off. And when we, the Sabs and I myself, ran to lift him, he was dead. I helped to carry him out. Ah, he was a strong Saab, but he is dead. And I, old Mangal Khan, am still living by your favour. That was more than enough. I had my ghost, a first-hand authenticated article. I would write to the Society for Psychical Research. I would paralyse the empire with the news. But I would first of all put 80 miles of assessed cropland between myself and that dark bungalow before nightfall. The society might send their regular agent to investigate later on. I went into my own room and prepared to pack after noting down the facts of the case. As I smoked, I heard the game begin again, with a miss in bulk this time, for the word was a short one. The door was open and I could see into the room. Click, click, that was a cannon. I entered the room without fear, for there was sunlight within and a fresh breeze without. The unseen game was going on at a tremendous rate. And well it might, when a restless little rat was running to and fro inside the dingy ceiling cloth, and a piece of loose window sash was making fifty breaks off the window bolt as it shook in the breeze. Impossible to mistake the sound of billiard balls, impossible to mistake the whir of a ball over the slate. But I was to be excused. Even when I shut my enlightened eyes, the sound was marvellously like that of a fast game entered angrily the faithful partner of my sorrows, Kadir Baksh. This bungalow is very bad and low caste. No wonder the presence was disturbed and is speckled. Three sets of dooley bearers came to the bungalow late last night when I was sleeping outside and said that it was their custom to rest in the rooms set apart for the English people. What honour has the Kansama? They tried to enter, but I told them to go. No wonder if these Uriyas have been here that the presence is sorely spotted. It is shame and the work of a dirty man. Kadir Baksh did not say that he had taken from each gang two annas for rent in advance, and then, beyond my earshot, had beaten them with the big green umbrella, whose use I could never before divine. But Kadir Baksh has no notions of morality. There was an interview with the Khan Summer, but as he promptly lost his head, wrath gave way to pity, and pity led to a long conversation in the course of which he put the fat engineer Saab's tragic death in three separate stations, two of them fifty miles away. The third shift was to Calcutta, and there the Saab died while driving a dog cart. If I had encouraged him, the Kansamar would have wandered all through Bengal with his corpse. I did not go away as soon as I intended. I stayed for the night, while the wind and the rat and the sash and the window bolt played a ding-dong hundred and fifty up. Then the wind ran out, and the billiards stopped, and I felt that I had ruined my one genuine hallmarked ghost story. Had I only stopped at the proper time, I could have made anything out of it. That was the bitterest thought of all. Ooh, how about that? Thanks to Richard Mitchley for reading My Own Ghost Story by Rudyard Kipling, who passed away on the 18th of January 1936. 
good writer. Another of my favourite writers that we lost uh, this month, it was in fact on the 21st of January 1950, was George Orwell, author of course of uh, 1984 and Animal Farm. Um, yeah, one of my favourite uh, writers here on Residence 104.4 FM, London's art station. It's literally London, so I can talk about one of my favourite writers. Um, probably because the Prol's Pub from 1984, the pub featured uh, in the book, is the widely believed to be the Newman's Arms in Fitzrovia and the London Literary Pub Crawl goes there. I go with it quite often. <laughs> so it's just reopened again, uh, owned by the Truman Brewery now. Um, so I thought I'd, uh, I'd play you this, because uh, obviously at Orwell was born um, Eric Arthur Blair on the 25th of June 1903 in eastern India. Uh, he was a bit of an anarchist during the 20s, but he believed that he could turn political writing into an art form. And he certainly did. And he's still motivating people now. See what you think of this. This is by a band called Push Loop. It's called George Orwell. Okay, yes. We are bored. We're all bored now. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money? And that all of this is much more dangerous than one thinks? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep? Somebody who's asleep will not say no? See, I keep meeting these people. I mean, uh, just a few days ago, I met this man that I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand. And he told me that he no longer watches television, he doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he really does feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now. And that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. <laughs> Thank you. 
powerful stuff. George Orwell from Push Loop. That's it from me. I'll see you next time. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Resonance 104.4 FM.